All right, good morning. morning. Good morning. Open up in your Bibles, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. As you're opening up there, a little update for you. Last Monday, we launched our uh, Q&A podcast. It's a daily podcast, five days a week. It's going to go indefinitely until somebody shoots us or kills us. Um, And so um, all last week and over the next uh, month, um, they're all questions revolving around prayer. This week coming up are questions on um, the charismatic movement and also Roman Catholicism. So if you want to know about speaking in tongues or should I pray the rosary, should I pray to saints, all those kind of questions, I want to encourage you to check those out. And uh, our desire is to make digital, helpful, and shareable. You guys are so smart. That's great. I love it. Content. Um, you can give it away. And so I know that there are many, many people in your life who would be really blessed by that. And our goal is to help give you guys tools that help build bridges for conversations. And digital content is an amazing way to build a bridge. They're between four minutes long and nine minutes long, like at the most. So if you have like no attention span whatsoever, it's for you. Um, So I want to encourage you guys to check that out. So we are in our third week on divine love. And uh, I got to just tell you personally, every single week on this is sort of just gut-wrenching for me. And uh, so God's word has been doing some work in me and my prayer for you guys is that today especially, um, this has been one of the more meaningful subjects for myself. And uh, I don't know about you, but there are some spouses that I will watch them be wounded and hurt by their husband or their wife. And I am amazed at how quickly and easily some can forgive. I truly forgive and then to move on and still love them sacrificially. Uh, I'm amazed. There are circumstances that come up where I watch people receive wounding on some deep and painful levels, and yet it does not hold them back from genuinely forgiving and loving. Uh, I'm amazed. I'm just amazed. It's rare, but when you see it, it's profound and it sticks out to you, and you're you're like, "How, how is this even possible? And what you get in those moments is a glimpse of what it means to be filled with God's actual love through faith in Jesus Christ that flows through us and toward other people, especially our enemies, especially those who've wounded us. It pursues and it gives our best despite, right? And so I've often wondered, like, is there some kind of secret to this? Like, how did the Apostle Paul love non-Christians enough to bring the gospel to them city after city after they try to stone him and they try to kill him and they mock him and they deride him and then he goes from city to city. Like what motivates this guy to not be one big walking Jewish grudge against his brothers and sisters, right? Uh, Do they understand like some kind of secret? Is there something that they get that maybe like most of us in this room don't quite understand? And I think the answer is actually yes. And this morning I want to tell you what I think is the secret for Christians to truly be able to love with divine love. So do you want to know what the secret is? I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you until about two-thirds of the way through the sermon so that you don't fall asleep. Don't die on me between now and then. Otherwise, you'll never know the secret. Okay, if you go to heaven, then you can just ask God what the secret is. Um, So I want you to open up with me. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in your pew. Open up your phone. Use that. Here's where it starts off. It says this. One of the Pharisees asked him, who is him? Jesus, good, to eat with him. And he went, Jesus, into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So I got to give you some context. So it was customary for one of the Pharisees, a religious leader or a town leader, when there was a respected or admirable person coming into town, that they would invite that person over for a meal. 
And uh, what they would do is they would sit not quite at a table like we think of it. They'd probably be sitting on the floor and their feet would be backwards away from the food. Why? Because their feet stunk. They were dirty, okay? So they would sit at the table. They would recline or lounge and they'd have this food and it was a big, great banquet. And, and here's what would happen. Um, the, the word would get around that this was going on and then people could come and observe. And they could stand around the perimeter of the room, especially poor people love this because if there was leftover food, because usually it was a big deal and the host wanted everybody to think that they were generous and benevolent, and so they put this big meal together. And, and so all of these people would stand around the edges of, of the room, uh, especially poor people, curious people, and the Pharisee asked Jesus to sit and recline with him. So they're having this conversation. It seems to be just the two of them, and everybody is eavesdropping. Now there's one rule. If you are the observers standing around the perimeter of the room, you may not touch or speak to the host or the guest, okay? Like this is cultural rule number one. You keep your mouth shut, you sit there, you listen. If there's leftover food in your pour, you can get some. Other than that, you do not engage. So that's kind of the context of what we're going into here. This is not just like a dinner where it's a private home and somebody's eating. This is more of a public affair. This is a city event. And verse 37 says, and behold, so something's about to happen. When you hear the word behold, it's not just a Bible word. It's like, pay attention, everybody. Something interesting is going to happen. A woman of the city who was a, say it with me, sinner. We're about 95% certain that this woman, her sin, being a woman of the city, was sexual in nature. She was either extremely sexually promiscuous, and everybody knew it, or she was a prostitute, that's possible. Um, but here's what we know, this woman um, was identified by the people as a sinner, a sinner, a woman of the city, probably sexual in nature. And so you need to know right off the bat that this woman is an outcast. She is somebody who people don't touch in the religious community. For her, her to even be in a Pharisee's home is a really, really big deal. And then it goes on and says, and when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So culturally speaking, it's going to fly right over your head. This is very important. Alabaster is a stone jar. And once opened, you don't close it. Okay? So this is a one-and-done kind of deal. Very expensive, 300 denarii of the time, which is about a year's worth of wages. Now, many of you have heard this taught, and many of you intuitively, you might read it, and you might read your notes, and it'll say it's a really expensive thing. And you might even be willing to go to this place where you say, look, she worshipped Jesus. You'll see what she does in a minute. And her worship was expensive. She gave her best. And although I think that's true to a degree, with almost certainty, we can say this, that the alabaster flask of ointment was meant to be a gift for her husband as a dowry on her wedding day. And I think when you get this, it changes the way you hear and perceive and feel and empathize with this woman. Uh, once this thing is opened, it couldn't be closed. She couldn't reuse this. And being a sinner of the sexual nature, uh, the elements of this jar will never, ever, ever be able to be used. Like, who's going to want an alabaster jar of ointment from a, a sinner, a woman of the city? And so what she has in this alabaster flask or jar of ointment, she's not bringing to Jesus her best. She's bringing to him all of her failure, all of her broken dreams, all of the could have, would have, should have. What might have happened if I would have been like the other girls and more godly and more this or more that? 
and it changes the whole dynamic. And so she hears that this is going to happen, <clears throat> and she immediately goes for her dowry. And then she brings this, and she's going to sit on the perimeter, stand in the perimeter of this room. And here's what we know. We know that she has previous knowledge of Jesus to some degree. You just don't hear this random guy, Jesus is coming, and go get your dowry and give it to the guy, right? She has some previous knowledge of Jesus, and she believes that he is safe. He is safe for sinners, and he is safe for sinners like her. I want you to like, catch this. Every man looked down on her or used her body. And there is something so fundamentally different about Jesus that he looked at her soul and saw her infinite value and worth. So it goes on. Verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet. Do you get the posture of the table? The table's in front, feet are in back. She's behind Jesus. And she's weeping. I mean, it, on some level, if you're watching this, this is, this is really awkward if you don't know really what's going on. And then she began to wet his feet with her tears. I mean, everything stops at this moment. But when you have a weeping woman who crosses a line, a sinful, sexually promiscuous woman who enters and starts touching a rabbi in the presence publicly, right? This is a moment. And she's wetting his feet with her tears. And then she undoes her hair, which, by the way, is just don't do this. I mean, this is undignified to the deepest levels. This woman already believes she is worth nothing. And this woman already believes that her greatest hopes and dreams of being a wife and a mother are done to the point where she's giving away her dowry. I imagine when she was a little girl, her dad looked at her and told her, you are so valuable and you're so special. I saved up an entire year for this alabaster flask jar of ointment. And I want you to give this to your husband on your wedding day. And I want you to remain pure for him. This is going to be a beautiful moment. So honey, sweetheart, I love you. And every time now she sees this alabaster, she sees everything that she's not. She sees something that nobody will want. And she thinks in her mind somehow this is something that Jesus wants from her. That he wants her brokenness. He wants her shame. He wants the worst of her. And she believes he is safe enough for, for herself to approach him publicly to make a complete mockery of herself. It says she wiped her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and she kissed his feet, which are clean, say no, no, they're dirty, and anointed them with ointment and immediately, not only did everything stop, but her tears are there. Everybody's watching this. The room is filled with the scent. I mean, this is a moment and I want you all just to agree on something for me, with me. In this story, she is the hero. If you miss this, you'll miss everything. She is the hero in all of her devastation and all of her undignified mess and, and just weeping and tears and all of this. Like everybody knew what this alabaster jar was for. Everybody got it. The point was clear. I mean, this is one of the most shameful, embarrassing, undignified moments. And yet you, you have to get this. She is the model. She is the hero. She is the winner here. She gets something. She gets this secret. She understands her. She's about to get it in just a moment. And then we get to point number two. We see it's that good people miss the secret inevitably. Who's the villain? Simon the Pharisee. I mean, on the surface, he's a good guy, right? He's the religious leader. He's the guy who invites Jesus over to his home. So pop quiz, did Simon the Zealot have good intentions inviting Jesus to his home? Answer everybody, say no. 
No, the Pharisees did not like Jesus by and large. They wanted to trap him and to catch him. Um, their ultimate goal was to kill him. He stood as a threat to everything they loved and stood for. And so in verse 39, it says this. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he mutters under his, under his own breath, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who he is touching him, for she is a sinner. I mean, I love this. He publicly says this under his breath so that everybody in the room knows he doesn't stand for this. This arrogant, prideful, religious, good man, this leader is, is just distancing himself from Jesus and this act. And Jesus, even though he says it to himself, responds. So we're going to have a showdown now. It's going to be a public showdown. All these people are listening. This woman is weeping at his feet and kissing him. The smell has overtaken the room. This Pharisee is disrespecting Jesus publicly. So what's Jesus going to do? Just word of advice, don't disrespect Jesus because he'll win in an argument every time, just FYI. Says this, verse 40. And Jesus answering to him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> I, I just don't want to be with Jesus. Michael, I have something to say to you. Okay, here we go. And he answered, Say it, teacher. I mean, do you feel the tension between them right now? I mean, this is a moment. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which is 20 months' wages for a common man. That's a year and eight months. It's a lot of money, right? And the other 50 denarii, which is about two months of wages. So I would rather be in debt two months' wages than, than a year and eight months. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. So Simon the Pharisee, which of them will, what's the word? Love. So last week we went through the details of all the different kinds of love. This is agape, sacrificial, life-giving like, give you my best love. And here's what he's asking, okay? You have two people in debt. One is in debt a lot, another is in debt a little. The guy cancels the debt. Who will be more grateful and love their debtor, who is no longer their debtor, the most? Who will be most willing to sacrifice and give their best and their loyalty to the debtor from here on out? Answer is the person who had the most debt. I mean, it's common sense. This is easy. This is not crazy or irrational. And verse 43 says, Simon answered, the one... I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. You're a genius. Good job. Uh, question for you. A husband cheats repeatedly on his wife, approaches his wife, and with true repentance, apologizes. And the wife genuinely, from the heart, forgives him. Option number two. A wife steals $500 from her husband, goes out, has a spa day, lives it up, uh, gets caught, genuinely apologizes, and the husband truly forgives her, never brings it up again. Which one will love the other more? The cheating husband or the wife who stole $500? You say the cheating husband. It's, there's not a trick answer. It's like pretty simple. That's the point. I want to make it easy, right? It's not a trick. A gang member kills your only child and is caught. He asks for your forgiveness, and you genuinely grant it. A teacher calls your child dumb in front of his class, owns it, calls you up and the child genuinely apologizes and you genuinely forgive. Who will love you more, the gang member or the teacher? The gang member, a hundred times over. The good man, the religious man, he's going to miss the whole point. The sinner, she's going to get the point. The good man thinks he's better than everybody else in the room. 
the sinner realizes who she actually is. Do you want to know the secret? Not going to tell you yet. Number three. Verse 44. I want you to catch the nonverbals that are communicated. Then turning toward the woman. So he's looking at the sinner, but he's going to talk to Simon. And he's making a very clear point to the sinful woman, okay? So he looks at Simon, and he says this. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Do you hear every single person in the perimeter of the room listening with bated breath? You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Listen to this. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, they're forgiven, for she loved much. But he, masculine, now talking to Simon, a little slap in the face, he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, you're going to be tempted, okay? Those of you who are a little more theologically astute, you might be tempted at the, uh, uh, the part where it says, for she loved much, to conclude this. She was forgiven because she loved. It's not true. And you're going to see this in a little bit, so you have to take my word for it, but Jesus actually goes out of his way to explicitly make sure that all of the readers and all of the listeners understand this. This woman wasn't forgiven because she loved. She loved because she was forgiven. A hundred times over. So we're going to get that off the table, so I don't want you to see something that somehow her love produced her forgiveness. Not at all the case. And then he says this, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I want to give you the secret. Here it is. The depth to which you understand your sin corresponds to the heights with which you love. Good people love a little. Bad people who are forgiven love a lot more. The higher your estimation of yourself, the lower your love. The more you realize what you have been forgiven of in Jesus Christ, the higher your love. The Pharisee thinks he's good. That's why he doesn't love. Because he, he doesn't understand that he's actually just as bad as the sinner, but just in a different way. And he deludes himself. He believes. I don't have to be forgiven much, so my gratitude is low. And I will love to the degree that I believe that I have been loved. Who do you think will love more? who will love Jesus more, give him his loyalty, and will give away love, sacrificial love to other people, is it the sinner or the Pharisee? The sinner. The degree to which you understand your sin corresponds to the heights with which you will love. You will never love to a greater degree than you believe you are sinful. So now, some of you are like, man, pastor, you're like such a bummer. Why do you have to talk about sin all the time? Don't worry, this isn't going to be all bad. Just relax. Entitlement, I believe, is one of the worst things that has happened to the Christian church. And by the way, it's not just young people, it's everybody. Entitlement says this, God loves me because I deserve it. God loves me because I'm good. Entitlement is disgusting. God hates it. The Pharisee was entitled. He believed that his value was based on how good of a human being he was. And therefore, God, look at how good and righteous I am. Therefore, the response is, you should love me. 
So you know what happens to entitled people? When they fail to perform, they believe that God's love corresponds to their goodness, and so they doubt God's love for them. So if you're going to be entitled, hear, hear me, you will never understand the love of God, and you will never give away love. Because the people who understand the depths of their brokenness and that God has loved them despite that are the ones who give away the most amount of love. If you think you're good, you will not love. Some of you have a cold heart towards God, and I will tell you this, I'm almost confident with 98.765% of you that you don't have love for God or people because you overestimate your goodness. Forgetting every ounce of righteousness that flows out of your body, your mind, or your mouth for a Christian is only Jesus' righteousness through you. It didn't originate with you at all. Had Jesus not intervened in your life and given you his righteousness, you would have no righteousness to give other people at all. And so we step back, and here's what we understand. Entitled Christians love very little, and they love to look at other people who are lesser of obedience and lesser maturity and lesser Christians, wag their finger at them. Of course, we never say that because you're not supposed to. We just feel it, and we think it. I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. Forgetting none of your righteousness came from you in the first place. So you might ask, if God's love for me is not based on my performance, what is it rooted in? Because for every religion on the planet other than Christianity, God's love and acceptance for you is based on performance. Everyone, I mean, if it's, it doesn't matter what it is. Every religion on this planet and every perversion of Christianity, here's how you know it's a perversion, because they make salvation or forgiveness or God's love for you or any of the benefits of being in a relationship with God contingent upon performance every time. So if it's not based on my performance, why does God even love me anyways? I'm going to give you the answer. God loves you because you're not just an acquaintance. You are a son or daughter. Moms and dads, you have these children. You love them. You love them with an agape love. You love them naturally, hormonally, instinctively, because you're made in the image of God. And God has given you that love for that children, child. It is undeniable. You can't shake it. Even when they are terrible. Even when they call you names. Now, now parents, are your kids wicked little sinners? Everybody give me an amen, right? Yeah? Okay. Does that change your love for them in any way, shape, or form? No. Can they grieve you? You better believe it. Can they wound you? You better believe it. Does your willingness to love them and sacrifice for them go down because of their lack of performance? The answer is always, a thousand times, no. And so God looks at humanity and says, how can I love you despite your sin and your evil and your wickedness and your rebellion? Because despite what you do, who you are trumps what you do. And who you are is a son or a daughter. The depths to which you understand your sin correspond to the heights with which you love. And the lower you understand yourself and what God has saved you from, the higher you will love. And you understand God didn't reach down to save you because you're good or because of your capacity to do great things. He reached down to save you because you are a son or a daughter and you're made in his image. Let's be honest, right? You stick, you will fight for your blood. 
You will fight for your image. Every child of every parent, they're made in your image and your likeness, they are your blood and you would do anything for them and you begin to get an understanding of this. Now, people have such a hard time understanding this because in this culture, uh, so much, I would say almost all of the love that we give and receive is contingent love. It's based on performance. You can, I'll love you, but there's always a point where that love will stop. You know what I mean? And you know where the threshold is and you don't want to go past it. What child, I want you to just process this with me for a minute. What child does not have this deep desperation to be loved by their biological dad? It is in us. I mean, it is deep and profound. I mean, it is so powerful that there is no wound that any other human being can inflict on a young person like the wound of a dad. Why? Because God has wired us to be desperate for the love of our earthly father. Why? Because he is not our eternal father. It is a shadow. Is it an image of our deeper, grander desperation to have our dad look at us and say, despite you, despite your failures, despite your weakness, I love you unconditionally. Nothing that you say or do will change that. I mean, there are so many of you in this room, you would give anything to speak to your dad and for your dad to look at you with the most genuine compassion and say, unconditionally, I love you, and then have him back up those words with actual sacrificial action. And every child, every adult child or child child in, on this planet has an opportunity for the actual reality, not the shadow of the earthly father, but the reality of our heavenly father to actually love us unconditionally and to fulfill that deepest longing inside of us. And so why does God love you despite yourself, despite your struggle? Because you are infinitely valuable. You are his rebellious son or daughter who has ran away from him. But it doesn't matter what you do because love from a father to a son or to a daughter is not contingent on performance. It is based in blood. It is based in you're made in my image and my likeness, and I love you. And Jesus, I just imagine he's sitting with the sinner. I mean, Jesus is the word of God. From his mouth, all matter existed. And Jesus looks at the sinner, knowing her heart, knowing what she did, knowing that he made her for a greater purpose. And he looks at her, and he receives her dowry. He receives this moment of pure hopeless desperation and he looks at her despite what she's done and they are reconciled in that moment. And he looks at her with no shame. On the other hand, the good man, the religious guy, he's the villain. I mean, do you see that? Isn't that crazy? That some of you in here, you're good and righteous, but in this story, you want to identify with the prostitute, with the, with the, with the woman, but you are actually the good, righteous person and you're the villain. Why? Because you overestimate how good you really are. Now, I want to talk about sin for a moment because some of you will say, why do you always talk about sin? Any discussion of sin for the Christian that does not lead us to feel more deeply loved by God is not a finished discussion. So when we talk about the reality and the depths of who we are in the flesh apart from Jesus Christ, never do I want to leave you in the depths of despair if what the Bible says about us is true, that we are as sinful as the Bible says, and we are not loved, we are totally hopeless. But when I understand the depths of a God, of who I am, and then I understand that God loves me despite that, my response to the discussion of depravity and sin, my depravity and sin, should always be, wow. Wow. You know everything about me, and you still love me. So I want to talk about sin for a moment, not to leave you hopeless, but to amplify 
God's love for you. Because the greater your debt, the greater your love for him. The less your debt, the more neutral and cold you'll be to him and to others. If you understand you've been given amazing grace and love to degrees that you can even barely comprehend, what will you give to your wife or to your husband or to your kids or to your enemies or to your friends? You will give back that which you have received. As we get into this, uh, a few preface comments. I'm not a Christian. You hear me say this all the time, but some of you are new and you never heard and I want you to get this. I'm not a Christian because I'm good. I'm a Christian because I'm a sinner. And I am not valuable to God because I'm good. I'm valuable because I'm a son. That's it. So when we talk about this, every bit of this discussion should point you back to Jesus and you should just get on your face and say, thank you for loving me. I haven't even begun to understand the depths of my sin. And the more I do, the more I understand how much you really did give to me. Thank you. And God, I pray that you would help me even today just get a little bit deeper understanding. I want to read you a quote from Tim Keller. He says this, The gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. If you just had the first sentence, what do you leave with? Desperation. But when you hold depravity with God's love for you in tension, what happens is your love for God goes through the roof. So I want to read with you Romans chapter 5 as we get ready to close. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, he says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts. So let's just get this on the table, okay? Does God love every follower of Jesus Christ? Say yes, please. Go with it. Yes, okay. He doesn't just kind of like love you. God's agape, sacrificial, like love. And as it's been sprinkled on, it has been poured over you. Like you're a cup and it is overflowing. So when you think that you have begun to understand the depths of God's love for you, you haven't even begun to scratch the surface. So, but here's what happens in the Bible. Almost always, God's love for you is preceded by or followed by a discussion of the depths of your sin. Do you know why? Because for you to understand how much God has loved you and given to you, you need to understand how bad you truly were apart from Jesus and the debt you truly owed him. And so here's what he's going to do. He's going to just make sure you get this, okay? God loves you. And if you want to understand this to the depths uh, that he truly does, you've got to get the following statement. So let's keep going. For while we were still weak. I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that you are weak? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I mean, you're going to watch these words get bigger. Do you believe you are ungodly apart from Jesus Christ? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, right? point being, are you good according to the Bible? The answer is no. He's saying it in the inverse. One wouldn't dare even to die, but God shows his love for us that while we were still, say it with me, sinners, do you truly believe that you're a sinner. Now, culturally speaking, this is where the language can stop and people are like, all right, I'm not really offended, but this is where it starts getting offensive. Since, therefore, we have now been justified or made right with God by his blood, Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved. Do you believe that your plight before God is so desperate that there is nothing left that you can do to make it right? Because people don't ask to be saved if they still have, an, uh, they still have something that they can use to save themselves. Here's the point here, is that do you believe that there is nothing that you have in your arsenal of good works or righteousness or whatever else that will actually permit you to be made right with God? 
And then, let's get even more, you'll be saved from what? From the wrath of God. Do you believe that your sin is so grotesque and ugly to God that the only just and right response is for the fullness of his wrath to be poured out not on your sin, but on you? He's not done yet. For while we were enemies, do you believe that apart from Jesus Christ, you saw God as your enemy and that you and him were, as the Bible says, hostile? Now, some of you, right, you think God is some dude, old dude up in the clouds. He's got angels and harps singing around him, and he's just twiddling his thumbs, and good people get to go there, and bad people don't, right? Your view of God is little, and the Bible just dismantles our trite cultural view of God and makes him to be something infinitely more holy, majestic, and awesome than we ever put together in our brains. So I just want to stop for a moment and say, is this your understanding of the depth of your sin? Now, some of you will say, um, Michael, listen, I'm not a Christian, but... I think something's wrong with God because I've sinned, but don't you feel like that's kind of like a little over the top? Like, is God overcompensating? Is he insecure? He's like, oh, I'm going to pour all my wrath on you. Like, this doesn't quite like feel right to me, you know? Like, it's not a big deal, right? So I have two options for you. Option number one, God is wrong. And he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just an emotional little baby who is just, you know, just going through adolescence and he's all just extreme, Right? Uh, maybe that's true, right? And you are so smart. You are the definition of justice and you know what is right or wrong. Or maybe he knows something you don't know and you're wrong. I mean, this is, this is like the quandary that most people are in. Either God's right and I'm wrong or I'm right and God's wrong. Either way, let me just tell you this. You're not God, so you don't get to have the final say. Even if he is a big, like, grumpy, like, adolescent kid, he still wins, right? And he's not. He's an infinitely holy, majestic, amazing God whom every knee will bow before his feet and say, you're amazing, I'm not. It's not an accident that in the Bible, when people come face-to-face with God in reality or a vision, what do they do? They fall on their face, they confess their sin, and they say, woe is me. Why? Because when you actually stand face-to-face with him, all your delusions of your goodness, which, by the way, you're deluded because you compare yourself to the person next to you, when you have to compare yourself to Jesus, you fall on your face and say, woe is me. And then, in that context, right, God still loves you, how much more will your love increase in light of the truth of your depravity? So good news. God loves you and me despite me, because I am infinitely valuable. And even though I don't deserve it, even though I was an enemy, even though I deserve the wrath of God, he pursued me, and he poured out his love on me, and he called me his child, even though I said, I don't want you to be my dad. And he poured out blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And even now, sometimes as his kid, I'm like, yeah, I don't want that one, whatever, I know it's best for me. And even when I reject them, he still pours them out on me, because all of my rejection was paid for on the cross. I mean, this to me is just mind-blowing. I want to look at you and say, Phil Church, God loves you. But your ability to receive that and give it away is contingent on you rightly understanding the depth of your sin apart from Jesus Christ. The closer you get to that, the more gratitude you will have for what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. But if you just think you're good, good people love a little broken, sinful, forgiven Christians love like crazy. So what's the secret? 
think Paul, I think Stephen, at the end of his life, asked God to forgive the people who were literally stoning him to death. I think they might have been up to something. They might have understood something, and maybe they understood by being with Jesus what God had truly saved them from. I want to close, and I want to look at the final verses of this. And he, Jesus, says to her, remember, he's still looking at her. He was talking to Simon. Now he's talking to her and looking at her. Your sins are forgiven. Do you just feel the flood of release from this woman? Like, probably she might have been afraid that Jesus would publicly rebuke her for taking such an inappropriate, undignified approach to him publicly. And he just looks at her and says, you're forgiven. There is nothing that stands between you and God. You're forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this to even forgive sins? Blah, 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 blah. Jesus, totally unfazed by their stupidity, the good people's stupidity, he looks at the woman and he says this, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Did this woman's love save her? No. Don't, can't miss that. I'm so glad Jesus put that line in there. Otherwise, we'd be debating forever. Love saves you, right? Her faith, her trust, not her goodness, not her works, not her um, awesome righteousness, not all of her ministry capacity and life-changing kingdom-building capacity, none of that. What saved her was she got to the end of herself and she believed. And here's the crazy thing. She didn't even say a word. She didn't say a word. Her weeping spoke so loudly. Her dowry was the confession of her sin and her belief in him that he's the one who could actually forgive her. And so I look at this and I'm like, whether I like it or not, I want to be good, but I'm the sinner. And so the best news I can give you is not you are terrible, wretched sinners apart from Jesus Christ who deserves the full wrath of God and eternal conscious torment and hell. True. (laughs) The news that I can give you is this. Despite that, God still loves you. And you don't have to work for it. You just have to receive it by faith. So some of you grew up in a world where you've been told, do the sacraments, do this, do that, perform this, do these good works, blah, 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 all this other religious mumbo-jumbo. And honestly, try finding it in the New Testament. You just don't find it. In fact, what you find here is Jesus confronting somebody and them saying, "Uh, Master, what good works do I need to do to get eternal life? And he says, here's the good work you need to do. Belief. Stop working because you have nothing to bring to the table that adds to your forgiveness. Jesus paid it all. You pay nothing. Will you receive it? Will you be reconciled to your dad? And that's the question, for, I think, for some of you in this room. You have never trusted in Jesus because you are so bloated about your sense of your own goodness and you need to get to the end of yourself and believe, I have nothing left in me. The only option I have is to throw my hopelessness and my broken dreams and my pain at the foot of Jesus Christ and to weep at his feet and to beg him without even words sometimes to forgive your sins. Then, here's the promise. He will look at you and say, your faith has saved you. That's it. And that person, they will love because they understand the depths to which they were bought from. So village, let's worship. I want to invite the team to come up. I can't think of any better response than to probing the depths of my sin and the greatness of his love. Let's pray together. Father, it is so 
hard to look in the mirror and own what is there. I want so badly to believe that I'm better than other people and to believe that I'm good and that you see value in me because of my performance and yet you look at me and us through the word of God, through scripture, and you just constantly declare you're not that good and it just kills me in my pride. Thank you that you look at each of us in this room who've trusted in Jesus and you call us reconciled, forgiven, beloved sons and daughters. And that no matter what we do, we cannot escape that love. It is as secure as anything in this world. And so I just want to thank you. And I pray, God, that as we remember really good moms and dads who have given that to us, and as we look at our kids, that we would be reminding them and ourselves that this is but a shadow of something infinitely more beautiful. But God, I pray you would teach us to love because we have been so greatly loved. And even this morning, as we think about our enemies or those who have wounded us, that we would figure out anew how to give them the love, just a glimpse and fraction of the love that we've received in Jesus. So, Father, we love you to the best of our abilities, flawed as it may be. And we thank you in the beautiful name of Jesus who saved us and all God's people said, amen.